Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. That conversation was maintained for many years. You know, we should buy a block of land that we can go out and teach our language, you know, and teach our culture and pass that knowledge on to our kids. But we've had to go through red tape and bureaucracy and, you know, asking non-Aboriginal Australians, say, can we have permission to go onto our own country? So the drives really come from the revival of our language and what comes from that is just, you know, the knowledge, our stories, music and dance and so many other things. So it's really exciting at the moment where we are with our animal culture and the revival of it. A community campaign to buy back traditional Aboriginal land and Surviving New England, a history of Aboriginal resistance and resilience on the colonial frontier. It's not just about the language and the words itself. It's about how that gives us a window into traditional Aboriginal worldviews and principles and practices and how it can be re-embedded and reintegrated into the other practices that are being revived on our country here. So it's not just something that exists in isolation. It's kind of like a, a glue or a web that can connect with and help connect with these other aspects of culture and traditional practice that are being revived as well. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. The Aboriginal flag is now free for all Australians to use under the federal government's $20 million deal to buy out the private companies who held exclusive licences over its use. Joining me to discuss this and the other big issues of the new year are Professor of Indigenous Workplace Diversity at the Jambana Institute, Noreen Young, and Professor of Indigenous Policy at the Jambana Institute, Lyndon Coombs. Noreen, what was your reaction to the deal made around the Aboriginal flag? My first reaction around this issue, Larissa, is always that I'm not a copyright lawyer and I'm not an Indigenous copyright expert and I think we need to leave the commentary to them. I think that the issues around Indigenous ownership of Indigenous intellectual property are complex, straightforward in the sense that Aboriginal people, of course, should own our own intellectual property, but that has taken such a long time to achieve. So Uncle, who designed the flag, I think it's his to own, but I think it should be communities to use. So I'm a bit torn on the issue, I think, like a lot of other mob commented, it is problematic that the government owns it, but I think it was a good solution at the time. Lyndon, it is complex and questions do remain over the future custodianship of the flag. What are your thoughts and why do you think people have concerns? Yeah, I, I think that outcome is probably the best that could be salvaged from what had sort of transpired. The thing with that flag is that it's such a simple yet powerful image that has brought Indigenous people together all over the country and that's no easy thing. And to have that symbol, that flag organically come to the forefront and be such a powerful symbol for so many people, for so many causes, to have that privatised really hurt a lot of people It hurt our communities. And once that happened, there had to be a deal made. And while it does grate on me that this symbol of resistance, this symbol of protest that is so powerful and so meaningful to us is now owned by the government, 
it's probably the best outcome that we could get in the circumstances. And so we do get to use that going forward now. I think there's a lot of issues on the table. I think we claim that back now. It's ours, you know, as far as morality and design and ownership goes, and and we should just take that and use it as our own going forward. I want to get back to you on one point you've made there, but also you mentioned how this had been a very emotional thing for First Nations people. Noreen, I just wanted your reflections on that. It has been, and it challenged a lot of First Nations people, the whole fight. Do you think it's changed how people feel about the flag, or do you think it's made the connection to it even stronger? I hope it hasn't, because it is, as Lyndon said, a really, really powerful symbol. I see where I live. I went to lunch on Saturday and I saw an ally T-shirt, someone wearing an ally T-shirt in a restaurant that Clothing the Gaps make, and it had the flag on it, and I thought, how powerful. I was really informed about how unifying and powerful it is when my kids were little because they were constantly drawing and painting the flag at school and preschool and then when one of our cats passed away they put it on the headstone for the cat and I think it's especially as kids grow up and you know start going to demonstrations and any event when there's a need for a representation, the flag's used and it's really important. So I think there is and was an emotional connection and it was a terrible thing to go through. Lyndon, just coming back to one point you made about you know, the frustration that's been expressed within the First Nations communities across the country, that the flag is now, in essence, owned by the government as opposed to the community. It's a reminder that a licence was given to ATSIC, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, as I guess as a symbol. Now people can argue whether that was a statutory authority or not, but I think it was a symbol that the flag belonged to the people. You've been the CEO of another national body. Just, just, I was just wondering what your reflections are about these moments and what it says to us about the need for that independent voice away from government. Yeah, you picked the eyes out of that one. There are many moments where I I see what's going on and the absence of a national representative body for us, comprised of us, is so vital. You know, the intervention was probably the greatest example of that, where there's this absence of bringing together Indigenous people, Indigenous views and putting those forward. And this was another one. And, you know, we'll continue to encounter these things for as long as we don't have one. And we're constantly diminished by not having a national representative body. You know, hopefully we can rebuild something. It will always be a target for governments because they are so powerful and dangerous that governments will do their very best not to contribute to a national representative body because of those reasons. And yeah, this is just the latest episode where we are the poorer for not having one. Staying with the flag, an announcement was made recently that we'll see the Aboriginal flag permanently atop the Sydney Harbour Bridge, an iconic Australian image, and it's part of a new holistic approach to acknowledging Indigenous Australians put forward by the New South Wales Premier. Lyndon, what were your thoughts on the significance of this announcement? It's nice. I know that there are a lot of Aboriginal people who have been pushing for this, who see that as you know, a symbol of power, of recognition. 
I like that. As a former co-chair of the New South Wales Reconciliation, that was something that was part of our program and I'm very pleased for it to have come to fruition. But there is a place for symbolism and, like I say, that's nice. And it's really what comes in behind that. So when it's either the New South Wales government or corporates or other people who make symbolic gestures, it's always really important to see What's behind that? What are the what are the actions? What are the the transactions that are, are taking place that are supporting Indigenous people and communities? Noreen, what are your views on that? Do you think it's merely symbolic, or is this symbolism that actually might translate into something more? I am a believer in symbolism. I think symbolism's important. I am a Sydney woman and so that particular piece of symbolism is really important to me, particularly over the harbour and I think our waterways are very important to us as saltwater people here in this area. So I'm really in favour of it. But as Lyndon said, the proof will be in the pudding. We have had so many promises in New South Wales over such a long period and I don't think... There's ill intent on the part of this government. I think some of the things that are being done are really positive and I think there is goodwill, but the proof will be in the pudding. And so it's always that thing of assessing the symbolism combined with the real actions. It's interesting, the modern Liberal Party is so neoconservative and so full of reactionaries that it's nice to see a branch of the Liberal Party doing something that does recognise symbolism. You know, we've had John Howard's attitude towards the stolen generations and towards symbolism. We've had all of that divisive stuff around symbolism and how that's portrayed by the right. So it's quite nice to see the right-wing party behaving in a decent way for a change. You're listening to Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berrant and my guests tonight are Noreen Young and Lyndon Coombs. As a date for the upcoming federal election looms, Prime Minister Scott Morrison has recently admitted regret over the government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Noreen, how have you assessed the response to COVID-19 at both the state and federal levels? At the federal level, I think worse than useless. I think ideology has gotten in the way of decent, sensible public health responses. I think, like everything to do with this government, it's highly politicised, even when it comes to medical personnel who you would think would simply be acting in the interest of public health and public health interventions. There's been an ideological approach. I think in terms of the state government, there wasn't. I think... For a long time, I think Premier Berejiklian was really sensible and listened to the health advice, but it got to a stage where she started advocating opening up because she was under pressure from the ideologues in her party and now we have Premier Perrottet. I think there is no question that the let it rip approach has meant that ideology has won. So I think... Absolutely worse than useless in terms of the feds, in terms of New South Wales now. A lot of people are dying. We're not hearing about it. We're not conscious of it in the same way we were this time last year. The aged care system is a debacle. My mother's in it. 
she is locked down. My daughter went there for an hour yesterday. She's allowed to have one visit her, which is my daughter is the designated one. She can only have them there for an hour, not very often. It's horrible. I've got other friends whose parents are in aged care and they can't see them at all. I think that the pandemic has highlighted areas of neglect by this government and aged care is a really good example. It's a disgrace. Lyndon, what are your thoughts? I think this has exposed the sort of rampant privatisation of our health services and a range of other services, including aged care. We were woefully ill-prepared for what has come. And while I've heard people sort of excusing the Prime Minister for a one-in-100-year event, but this wasn't totally unexpected. And this is why we have public health. We have public health in place to prepare for these types of things. And this federal government, its immediate concern is the economy. Its immediate concern is its donors. And this is the prism through which they operate. Now, we've seen that even with the rats and the, the debacle that that was. They didn't want to give them for free because they didn't want to interfere with the profit margins. Um, and so public health comes somewhere down the line in terms of priorities. And that's where we get into huge trouble. And I guess the disappointing thing, there's lots of disappointing things, but the disappointing thing is that we're not discussing the importance of investing in public health, in public aged care, and building these services back to what they were. The dependence on private organisations, we saw we were overrun when people were out getting tested, we were told always to get tested, then we're suddenly being told, don't go get tested because we're not prepared. And all of this is because we've, over successive governments, have ransacked public health with the goal of privatising and looking after donors. And that is the current modern liberal philosophy. I'd you know, be willing to hear other alternatives, but we've seen that repeatedly across a range of areas. Prisons, I have no idea why we would privatise prisons except to make money for our mates. And that has, a, that has an impact. And when things go bad, then the cracks are exposed. And I think that's what's happened. And I'd like to see a, a bigger discussion around that. Well, finally tonight, a new study has predicted the majority of New Year's resolutions will be abandoned by January 19, not even three weeks. So it did make me think and wonder what your New Year's resolutions were. Did you make one? And if so, have you managed to keep it? Noreen? No, never make them. I resolve, well, I don't anymore. I resolve to give up smoking every year for 20 years. Didn't happen. That has now happened, but I just don't make them, like there's no point. You know, I just think it's a waste of emotional energy. Well, <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Starting the new year, not changing a single thing. <laughs> what about you, Lyndon? Do you try and make yourself better each year or do yeah. you, like, like Noreen, abandoned all hope? <laughs> no, I, I have the same resolutions every year to exercise more and be better with my money and I've had that for quite some time. But the trick to this is not to make it in January, make it in February. And so my friends and I do a thing every February. So when you're back from holidays, don't make resolutions while you're still drunk, like on the 1st of January. 
wait until February when you're back at work and you're in some structure and you'll have a better chance of keeping your your resolutions. I think that's very wise. And I actually don't make news resolutions, but I do try and improve myself every year with the similar results that Noreen has of not really succeeding. (laughs) But I do it on my birthday because then I kind of feel like I'm starting a new year and trying to at least go through the pretense of improving myself. Like Linda and mine are the same every year. Well, I can attest that Lyndon does lose weight every February. Whether he keeps it off during the year is another issue. <laughs> well, and we... I can also say that I have lost weight over the last two years and doing what every Aboriginal person wants to do, which is turn around their diabetes. Good on you, Ray Kelly, for inspiring me. UTS plug. But didn't happen on New Year's Eve. Like I just, as Lyndon says, no, nah, it's just a waste of time. So we shouldn't be left with the impression that there's no self-improvement going on in no, Noreen Young's no. world. You just do not, you just uh, do not believe in New Year's resolutions. Absolutely. Well, thank you. We'll keep an eye on and an update on Lyndon's weight and see if that <laughs> prediction that he'll I lose it over, over February. Needs to know. Yeah, a, <laughs> a yearly tally of Lyndon's Accountability weight. Accountability is part Yeah. We'll keep a look out and see if the weight goes down and then up again. That will be amusing for you, Lyndon, for the whole of Australia yeah. to follow your weight loss journey or otherwise. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for both being with us on Speaking Out this evening. My guests have been Noreen Young, Professor of Indigenous Workplace Diversity at the Jambana Institute, and Lyndon Coombs, Professor of Indigenous Policy, also at the Jambana Institute. Join the conversation online, facebook.com slash ABC Speaking Out. Look, listen and learn knowledge. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Coming up, you'll hear all about a new campaign to secure land in an effort to preserve traditional language, culture and knowledge. Right now, though, some music from Barker. Here she is with For My Titters. Put this over your father so you think strong. Put this under your mickeys so you see your ancestors walking with you. Put this under your yalka so you always speak the truth. Never be ashamed of who you are. Black sister, where you going? How you doing? Where you been? I ain't seen you on the scene for a couple of weeks. By all means, stay on your roll. You gotta do your thing. But please don't sell your soul for a couple of jeeps. Embrace your black skin and your race within. You're blessed by your blackness and your dark skin kid. Race strong black kids, forever drugs in the bin. And you'll be bound to make your old people look at you and grin. Huh. Stand strong like your matriarchy. And titter, aim higher than the stars can reach. You ain't gotta act different when it comes to me. I believe in your sister, take a walk with me.
she's to you know the deeps of her roots. Black woman in a white man's world. It's tough being sexualized. She's always black. That's enough. You work more than getting treated like dirt. Show love and give your sisters what they truly deserve. Respect. We sick and tired of getting treated as less. Saying that sex sells, but I got no products to pay. The way you treat your woman has you looking real oppressed. She got her law, you got yours. It's time to have it addressed. If she stands with you, then stand with her. Cause handing down this feeling is a bigger picture. Got nothing to do with your sexual preference. This is about our solidarity that's hidden question. Huh. Barker there with For My Titters. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Language revival organisation Naywara Aboriginal Corporation has launched a crowdfunding campaign to buy back land on Anawan country. Much of Anawan country is currently privately owned and traditional owners often come up against red tape when trying to access their country. The group is looking to raise between $350,000 and $450,000 to purchase around 100 acres of bushland in the northern tablelands of New South Wales. Dave Witters is leading the campaign and he joins me now. Dave, welcome to Speaking Out. Yeah, thank you, Lucia. Very good to be here. Now, tell us about this land that you're seeking to buy back. Where is it and what is its cultural significance? Yeah, at the, at the moment, and it's, it's a question often asked about, you know, what block of land are we going to buy? The market's really up and down, like land comes and goes. And the bottom line is if we don't have the money, we can't purchase the land. So this is a drive for the, the raising of the funds. But we've we've looked at a few blocks around the Armadale area. It's where Anawan country sort of sits on. And we want to capture the Anawan essence of like up here on Anawan country. We, there's a lot of granite country. We've got beautiful gorges up here, a lot of creeks and little brooks and, and small rivers and just granite all over the joint. So we want to really try to buy a plot of land that really captures our identity within our country and we've been looking at a few plots around like the Armadale region that have that. We've had a farmer that sort of has offered us a block of land that we can go to and have access to 
but it's really built for cattle and sheep. It's flat. There's no trees. You know, it doesn't really capture what we're after. So we're, we're still on the lookout. Well, it's interesting to me because I have been up that way and, of course, the country there is beautiful, but I think what's also striking is that there's been quite a lot of cultural and historical revival led by the Anawan community there. I'm thinking about your language program, your sort of recent mapping of massacre sites. So is this campaign to uh, get land back really part of a broader cultural revival or cultural engagement of Anawan people? Absolutely, and, and the foundation of that has actually come from like our language. Like here, our mob here on the New England Rangers, when we were here in the 1830s, like language was sort of pushed aside and driven away due to that massacre period, but also during the Aboriginal Protection Act period where we weren't allowed to be Aboriginal, we weren't allowed to speak our language. So for our mob up here, we've only sort of rediscovered about 480 words to date, so we're quite early in the stage of reviving our language. But the more we found out, the more it connected us to our country. And when we started back in 2016, it was just, you know, revive our language, but it just became so much more important. That connects us to our identity, the connection to land, but language is a really, for what I find, the foundation of our culture and it connects us to our country. So that conversation was maintained for many years. You know, we should buy a block of land that we can go out and teach our language you know, and teach our culture and pass that knowledge on to our kids. But we've had to go through red tape and bureaucracy and, you know, asking non-Aboriginal Australians, say, can we have permission to go onto our own country? So the draws really come from the revival of our language. And what comes from that is just, you know, the knowledge, our stories, music and dance and so many other things. So it's really exciting at the moment where we are with our animal culture and the revival of it. I was going to ask you about where the idea for the campaign came from because, of course, a lot of traditional owners around the country have the same issue of being blocked from getting onto their country for a range of reasons that you just described has been your experience. But this idea of crowdfunding to actually try and buy back the land so the community has control over it and has access is something that I don't think a lot of people have seen before. So where did the idea actually come from? Who sat down and said, let's crowdfund for this? Again, it was through our Naywara language group. We, we sort of said, right, let, let's and see how we can you know, do this. And, and Callum Clayton Dixon has been a really main driver of the language and the revival of stuff back up here. And it's through his, I think, knowledge and intelligence that really sparked the conversation to get that moving. And he's done a lot of research going into it. He's looked into the First Nation mobs in Canada, America, New Zealand, and also a few Aboriginal groups in Australia that have tried this also. So he's gone in, he's done the research behind it, and it's really paid off. Like the professionalism our group has done, how we market it, we've done videos and interviews and stuff on it. We've raised 311000 just over a three-week period. So it's there's always been a lot of talk around doing it. But we're tired of the talk. We just want to do the action to it. And it's really paying dividends for us. I was going to ask you what the response has been like, but I guess that's given us a bit of a hint there. Oh, and the, the money's coming in like from you know, locally here in our region. It's coming from a statewide perspective nationally. But we've also seen people donating with the pound sign on it. So we know it's coming from over in Europe somewhere. Oh, isn't so that wonderful? It's coming from all over. It's, has that Magic, surprised yeah. you? Has that surprised you how widespread the interest has been in the campaign? It, it really did, you know, to be honest, because you always sort of, when the Aboriginal people want to do something, it's always sort of looked down upon or frowned upon. And But it's been overwhelming and uplifting, the amount of support from non-Aboriginal people in particular that have really gotten behind the cause. 
And we didn't expect this amount to be raised in such a short time. But again, Callum's research told us that most of the groups that have done this in the past, the bulk of the money will come in that first 20 days. And it's come flying fast. Australia Day, Survival Day, whatever you want to call it, was a day that brought in probably 70 to 80 grand just in the one day. And that really surprised me because that day, sadly, I think divides us as a nation. There's a lot of, I think, hate and division on both sides of the fence on that day. But it was really, I know, a proud moment to see that so many non-Aboriginal people were supporting the cause. Yeah, it's a wonderful reflection, Dave, you've just given us because, of course, as you say, it is a very divisive day and people often wonder here. A lot of non-Indigenous people say, well, what can I do? And I guess you're offering people a very practical way to contribute to what's been a community-led cultural revival. And listening to you speak, I think it's really inspiring that there's obviously very strong cultural leadership there and you're kind of utilising the knowledge of the younger people in the community to support what the cultural leadership and the elders are wanting to do. It's a wonderful mix. I'm sure it's inspiring a lot of people who are listening, a lot of mob and thinking, oh, that's something we might try. What would your advice be for people who wanted to go down this path in their own community? I'd say give it a crack. Like, you know, we talked about it again, as I say, but and I've seen a lot of mob doing a lot of talking, but it's putting the talk into action. And our aim was also, yeah, hopefully we might inspire other Aboriginal nations to step up and say, well, we have a right to take our kids on our country and teach them our culture, but we don't own hardly any of our land. And, and that's been a real driving force behind it because for our mob up here on the New England Ranges, it's fantastic cattle country, it's sheep country, like it's some of the prime agricultural country in Australia. But when I drive around with my kids, I'm looking at all these farmers who were wreaking the wealth of all that agricultural industry. A lot of our mob are sitting back getting no wealth from that. And if you know the Australian's history, a lot of agricultural industry was built on the back of a free Aboriginal labourer under the old mission days and protection days, and we don't see that wealth. So it's been frustrating for me as a dad to say, well, why do I have to ask a white fella to take my kids on my country and teach them the language and the dances and the songs and the stories of our land? I think a lot of Aboriginal people are asking that same question. So I'd say I'd encourage you, get out and have a crack at it. Get yourself a good team with the right values and the right passion, and it can happen. We're just overwhelmed with the support we've gotten up here. Well, it is inspiring stuff. If people want to find out more and support the campaign, can you send us some material and they can come to the Speaking Out website and get connected with what you're doing and follow along? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then one other good link to go to is is our Naywara Facebook page, and that'll give you all the links of information and videos and stories. And and Naywara is spelled N-E-W. A-R-R-A, Aboriginal Corporation, and you'll find a whole host of stories and links there that you can connect to too. Well, it is inspiring stuff. Dave Witters, thank you so much for taking the time to drop by speaking out and tell us about this very exciting campaign. Yeah, and if I can just say one more thing, Larissa, I think with this journey that we're on, we've also got some non-Aboriginal people who've been on the side as volunteers helping us out. And if, again, you know our history, whenever we've fought for the human rights of the social justice and things like that, we've always had white fellas on that journey with us. So here locally, it's been really good to see that we've had that support from local people who've been contributing to the cause also, not just financially, but, you know, in, in kind. And, yeah, this is just so inspiring and uplifting and, and, and empowering for a lot of people up our way. Well, we love those stories of local reconciliation in action, so thanks for sharing that with us too.
No worries. Thank you and thank you for your time. Thank you. Dave Witters is an Anawan man and Naywara board member who's leading a campaign to buy back traditional land on the northern tablelands of New South Wales. Join the conversation online, facebook.com slash ABC Speaking Out. Look, listen and learn knowledge. As you heard earlier, in recent years, there's been a sustained effort to revitalise Aboriginal cultural practices in the northern tablelands of New South Wales. Callum Clayton Dixon is a linguist and historian and a founding member of the Anawan Language Revival Program. He is currently undertaking his doctoral studies on decolonising the Anawan language. He is also the author of Surviving New England, a history of Aboriginal resistance and resilience through the first 40 years of the colonial apocalypse. I caught up with Callum early last year and began by asking him about the reaction to his new book. The response has been really positive. We've gotten rid of and distributed well over one and a half thousand copies of the book, mostly in the local area in New England and especially in the Armidale area. And we've had a lot of positive feedback from members of the local community, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, about the book and I guess opening people's eyes as to what the nature of relations between Aboriginal people and the Squatocracy and the colonists during those early decades of the colonial occupation here on the Tableland, the nature of frontier conflict, what happened in terms of the decline in numbers of the Aboriginal population and what caused that, uh, all those sorts of things. And I think it's working towards opening up a, another conversation about where we go from here in terms of potentially frontier war memorials and conversations hopefully about access to country that's been locked up by pastoralism for decades and decades, if not well over a century, things like that, and even conversations about reparations. Often when the sorts of histories that you've written about in your book are spoken about, there is, as you say, that can change a conversation, but there's often pushback as well. Is there a growing acceptance of the history in the local area that you've seen, or has there also been a little bit of resistance to the stories that you're trying to tell? I actually haven't come across any sort of negative comments, at least not that I've been told of or heard in person or anything like that. But that's not to say that there isn't negative things being said behind closed doors. But surprisingly, people who are belong to old New England pastoral families or people who are farmers in more kind of contemporary times have been very open to the content of the book and I guess wanting to learn more about local Aboriginal history and culture and a few of my cousins who've been out doing survey work on pastoral properties in the area have said that the farmers that they've come across and interacted with in the area have been really, really interested in learning more about local Aboriginal history and the history of what went on on those big old pastoral runs. It's great to see that kind of engagement with history, and especially coming from your work. Your current project, a lot of your focus now is on rebuilding your own language. From your perspective, why is language regeneration so important? 
Well, I think I started out thinking about language revitalization as a bit of a kind of like a portal or a window into the revitalization of other aspects of culture and traditional practice. Like it's not just about the language and the words itself. It's about how that gives us a window into traditional Aboriginal worldviews and principles and practices and how it can be re-embedded and reintegrated into other practices that have been revived on our country here, uh, such as song and dance, we weaving, carving, any of those sorts of things. So it's not just something that exists in isolation. It's kind of like a, a glue or a web that can connect with and help connect with these other aspects of culture and traditional practice that are being revived as well. From the work that you're doing, what transformations have you seen as people and communities reconnect with their language? Well, back in October, November 2018, the Animal Language Rubble Program held our first ever community language classes. And that saw a group of about 20 people, uh, members of the local Aboriginal community, attend classes over four weeks, four Sundays, uh, a couple of hours each time. And people of all age groups, from five-year-olds all the way to people in their 70s and 80s, were able to engage in this language learning or relearning process. And it was really amazing because after just two or three classes, we had some of the kids who were, I think, only about eight and there was, there was two, there was one girl, one boy, one who was eight and one was 11, get up and teach the first week's worth of content to people who were coming in a bit later on in the along the track. And that included teaching their great uncle and things like that and watching that kind of process of young people taking on language relearning in a really, really prideful way and in a way that they were willing to step up and be a part of that process in a really, really involved, active way. Uh, listening to you speak about that experience, it's really clear why the process of language regeneration is important and important to a community. But what drew you to the project of rebuilding the dictionary? I guess what drew me to language revitalisation in the first place was, I think, when I used to attend rallies in Brisbane and a couple of my mates would get up and introduce themselves in Gamilaroi. And I thought, oh, I want to be able to do that one day. And I think that was one of the early kind of things that set me on a path to becoming really interested and involved in, in language. And then I, I think it was back in 2014 that I ordered from IATSIS one of the only surviving audio recordings of our language. And that, I think, began my journey into archival language reclamation and utilising records in the colonial archive that have been made by linguists and anthropologists and squatters who had remembered words when they were growing up on stations back in the 1840s and 1850s here in New England and utilising those records to breathe new life into a, a language that had been dormant from the 1950s or prior. So tell us about the process then that you're going through in terms of trying to collate all of the material for a dictionary. It seems like an overwhelming process to go through. So what are the steps? How, how do you actually approach something so large? Well, I guess the first stage was to track down all of the available archival records, including both published and unpublished uh, source materials, such as the field notes of R.H. Matthews or the field notes of anthropologist A.R. Radcliffe-Brown, and then 
pulling all of, all of those materials together that have been collected from places like IATSIS, the National Library of Australia, University of Sydney Archives, the Archives and Library here at the University of New England, and other sorts of repositories around New South Wales and the ACT. And then pulling all of those records together, transcribing them all into Word documents, and then compiling all of those into a kind of lexical database. And then from there, working on trying to analyse and get the most out of the orthographies, the spelling systems utilised by each of the recorders, because there's only two or three of the recorders, such as a German linguist, Gerhard Laves in 1929, who recorded some Manawan language, A.R. Radcliffe-Brown and Christopher Court in 1963, and then Bill Hodnot, who recorded a few Manawan words in the 60s as well. They were the only ones who actually used the International Phonetic Alphabet or a variation of it to record the language, whereas R.H. Matthews, F.J. Buchanan, who grew up on Rimbanda Station and picked up language there, people like them and William Gardner and others all use completely different ways of representing the sounds of our language. So it's really become a matter of trying to figure out exactly what types of sounds they were using. And so that's involved a process and continues to involve a process of looking at the work of other linguists who worked on neighbouring languages or other New South Wales Aboriginal languages to see what they've said about, oh, when R.H. Matthews uses this particular letter or this particular pair of letters, then he's trying to represent this particular sound there. So it's quite a detective kind of game or detective kind of work involved in trying to really get the most out of and most accurately reclaim the words out of the archive in the most accurate way possible so we're not butchering the unique sounds of our language. That sounds like such a complex, intricate process. But I was also interested that you said earlier on that where some of the sources of those words came from. And they weren't just linguists, but other people who were writing down words that they were hearing, Europeans hearing those words and recording them. And I was wondering, from your perspective in doing this work, what sort of process do you do to make sure that what they're thinking they're understanding in terms of hearing language is actually the right interpretation of the words they're hearing? Well, in, in our case, because Anerwin and the other dialects of our language have been so poorly recorded, we have really very few records to rely on. So in, in other cases with languages like Gumbangir on the coast or Gimilaroi out west, you've got a far greater body of language data to work with in terms of comparing what different recorders heard and how they chose to represent it. Whereas with ours, you do get that in some cases. For instance, I was just looking yesterday at the word that had been recorded for moon and it had been recorded by three different people, R.H. Matthews, um, this doctor who was living in Gleninus, John McPherson and F.J. Buchanan, the squatter on Rimbanda Station. And they'd all recorded it slightly different but you could tell that they were all recording the same word. But R.H. Matthews seemed to have picked up something that the other two didn't because he'd had experience with recording quite a number of Aboriginal languages. I think he recorded something like 53 different Aboriginal languages across Southeast Australia. So he noticed this other kind of sound that was in there, this retroflex consonant, whereas the other two didn't. And I'm thinking that's because they didn't uh, have nearly as much experience with Aboriginal languages as Matthews did. So I guess it's like quite a, an in-depth investigative process of trying to look really intricately at all these different kind of orthographic spelling conventions that each of the recorders have used and trying to get the most out of them. 
Is there a connection between the process of regeneration of language, of the community coming together and going through the process of learning and and sharing their collective knowledge of the language with the process of truth-telling? So the book Surviving New England actually came out of, I guess, the language research because we were constantly being asked by people, oh, well, why do you guys only have a few hundred words recorded? Why haven't you had speakers for decades and decades? Whereas there's been speakers up until much more recently or still today of languages like Gumbanga and Gamilaroi and, and other neighbouring languages. Why is it that your language seems to have, quote unquote, died out much earlier? So I started looking into that and what came out of that research, which ended up producing Surviving New England, was that there were a number of factors, including the absolute flooding of the tableland with livestock and colonists, which set about a process of forcing Aboriginal people into much closer and more regular contact with English-speaking colonists than in other areas. So with 500,000 sheep up on the table and within just 10 years of the colonial occupation beginning, you have the depletion of native food resources, forcing Aboriginal people into a position of having to either go and kill livestock, which then brings the wrath of the vigilante colonists and border police, etc., or going onto stations and working for rations, therefore coming into much more regular contact with white people who refuse to learn the local language. So the process of language decline or our language being forced into dormancy really began back during that early period of the, the colonial occupation. And so looking at those factors such as the influx of livestock and colonists into a region during those early years, whereas people often think that language was forced into dormancy or forced into sleep as a result of the protection era and the welfare board era where language was essentially banned. But that process really began decades and decades earlier and the protection era and the welfare board era really was what kind of finished off the language and sent it into that kind of final stage of dormancy. But that process began long, long before that. Callum, I asked you earlier about what the impact of the regeneration has been on community members and the community itself. I just finally this evening, in doing this project and going through all of the intricate work that's involved in it, what do you hope the legacy of the work will be? Yeah, I guess my hope is that the dictionary and the grammar, the language knowledge book, becomes a, I guess, a foundation for a sustained community language revitalisation effort where eventually we're looking at a situation where our language is once again spoken on a daily basis uh, in a very kind of conversational context, that it is utilised in the revival of other traditional practices such as weaving and carving and song and dance and, and all that sort of thing, and that eventually that language uh, knowledge book, that dictionary and grammar becomes something that just sits on a bookshelf gathering dust while our language sustains itself as something that's a living, breathing part of our community's cultural fabric. Callum, thank you so much for being with us this evening and sharing this important work with us and really giving us some great insights into the importance of language revitalisation for a community and also the really intricate work involved in doing that. No worries, thank you.
Anawan man Callum Clayton Dixon is a linguist and historian and a founding member of the Anawan Language Revival Program, and he is the author of Surviving New England, A History of Aboriginal Resistance and Resilience Through the First 40 Years of the Colonial Apocalypse. To take us out tonight, let's hear some music from Emma Donovan. Here she is alongside the putbacks with Black Woman. Your mouth keep on giving till you just can't give. Getting weaker by the night, can't find a reason, no reason to leave.
Emma Donovan there with Black Woman. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we will look at the topics that are keeping blackfellas talking. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Thank you.